to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watch Stargate and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing. Better to do so. Listen, here's our show. Hello and welcome to episode four of Probing the Wormhole, a SG1 discussion podcast. This episode covers the Broca Divide. Disclaimer, this episode contains descriptions of sexual assault and violence. Listener discretion is advised. So to our three participants. Why don't you go, guys go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Rose. I am super fan of all Stargate series. And I'm Samantha, also a super fan of Stargate. And I'm Malika. I'm still on the fence <laughs> and I'll be your host for today. So first, like, what I would like to do is start with the first scene which takes place in the boardroom does anybody have any insights especially the witty banter between carter and o'neill it still has some kind of like cringeworthy season one moments to it but i feel like you're starting to get more of the relationship with the characters and i do think that this is a nice way for like o'neill and carter to there was a lot of like shipper moments here there's the witty banter there's obviously that like you know virus fueled <laughs> scene where she kisses him and all that the only thing I remember uh, before I, I, I rewatched it was the kiss. At the time, I wasn't really a shipper when I uh, saw the kiss between O'Neill and Carter. And I was thinking, oh, crap, another show that's trying to force two characters together. And I was thinking that that a romance would then very gradually form between them. That was my first reaction upon seeing this scene. But now... <laughs> <laughs> I love returning to the scene of the, the locker room. So I want to take a moment and give some voice to the anti-shipper people. I don't understand them. It was a while since the first time I saw this. I think it was like, I don't know, 15 years ago. But there is something to be said. You know, this you have this one woman character who's really the only woman on the show until this episode we see Janet Frazier for the first time. And we'll talk about her. But you have this one woman who's in a very male-dominated sphere. And it's like, do you really have to make her like, sleeping with her boss or want to be sleeping with her boss. It feels a little cliche. It feels like it diminishes her contributions to the team and all that. And so it is like, I can see why that could be frustrating. And it does feel a little bit like forcing these two characters together. I just think the characters, they, they get so fleshed out and they're so like, it feels like a natural pairing to me as you, the series moves on. Uh, but it does feel a little bit forced at this point. Like maybe you have this like sort of latent attraction, but I feel like they're both so professional especially Carter, so professional that I wouldn't necessarily come out in this way in, in real life. I, I think that was the problem I had when I first saw the, this episode. I, I didn't want to watch another show where they were forcing the two uh, main characters together because this was a sci-fi show. I didn't want romance in my sci-fi. I don't know what I was thinking back then, now that I say these words, because uh, my mind has completely changed about them. But I think you're right. It was the chemistry that they had, these two characters, Carter and O'Neill. And that's what 
uh, led to the romance, just the, the, the witty banter between them, uh, the way O'Neill and Carter just fit together throughout the series. That, that's what worked for me and what brought me to the, uh, the ship corner. I did think that their banter was extremely sexy. At the beginning of this episode, I st- I'm still not a shipper. And even though there was witty banter between the two of them that did indicate sexual tension, I still was on the fence. Later, that changed a bit, but I, I thought it was very clever. This whole season, I feel like the characters sort of shine in spite of the writing. Like, I feel like the writing is pretty bad. The storylines are interesting, but a lot of the writing feels very flat, especially the writing for with the women characters. It feels very flat and forced. And I think the actors just did a spectacular job with it in spite of all that. I think also, and we'll see this later in the episode, but you know, the banter between Carter and O'Neill shows they're starting to split off from the four participants in SG-1 group. And later on, you see that it's Daniel and Tilk who also split off. So it's like, maybe they'll fall in love. (laughs) If only Stargate in 1997 was that progressive, it would have been awesome. Before leaving the boardroom from the first scene, what did you guys think about uh, SG-3, the Marines? I don't really know that much about like military culture, but if I was a Marine, I'd probably be annoyed (laughs) at how they're portrayed. They kind of come across as these like not very smart, trigger happy cannon fodder. Dare I say cavemen? (laughs) (laughs) They are the first ones to descend into the cave people. Does anybody have anything that they want to talk about as far as the conversation in the gate room? I thought that scene and also some other points in the episode sort of set up O'Neill as like not your usual military guy as like, you know, he takes point because he wants to, if Skara or Shari is on the other side, he wants to make sure they're not shot on site. And so he's sort of setting himself up as like the buffer and also sort of establishing that relationship with Daniel, which I think becomes really key in the series. So once they get through the gate, before we start talking about how they were attacked, I wanted to ask you guys about the white machine. When they come through and they're in the dark, there's like a little white machine there that looks broken. What is what is going on with that? That means that there was another group of military that came through? That's the mount. Do you know what it stands for, Sam? It stands for Mob- Mobile Analytic Laboratory Probe. It's the, it's just like, so they send that through whenever they're going to go to a planet, um, they send it through first to like make sure it has oxygen and, you know, is habitable and is safe. And then they go through. Well, that explains why they knew that it was dark on the other side. Right. But it, it really should have the uh, night vision. <laughs> that seems like a real failure of engineering there. You can explain why all the planets kind of look like Western Canada, right? Because they send these mouths through and they only go to planets that are habitable. And I wish they would have done that with the language. Like just put something in there that explains it and then we can move on. Like the mouth. Okay, we got the mouth. So we know that all these planets are where people live and they specifically took humans to planets that resemble those habitats. So now we're through the gate and it's dark. We'll later find out that it is called the dark forest. 
the camera footage indicated that this these were either Bigfoots or like the Predator. I didn't do the research on to find out when Predator came out, the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it felt very derivative of something else that I've seen from like maybe the early 90s. And then all of a sudden they were cavemen <laughs> in loincloths. So Predator came out in 1987. So it was before this episode. As we find out shortly, these people were Minoan descendants. So I did do a little research on the Minoan culture. Uh, The Minoans were a Bronze Age civilization from the island of Crete. Uh, They flourished from 3000 BC to 1100 BC. Okay, so kind of interested in tracking after last week's episode where you're dealing with a relatively recent earth civilization, which really does change the way that like the role of earth and the Gould mythology. So this is more in line with ancient Egypt. It's roughly the same time period. Europe, this is more European based, but it's roughly the same time period. So that kind of makes sense that they're coming from that time. Those are the land of the light people. Yeah, it was every, I mean, the land of the light people. And again, we don't know what's going on on the rest of the planet presumably it's an earth-sized planet and there's just like one city (laughs) right next to the gate and that's it so you wonder what they're doing with the rest of the planet but that's the land of the light people and their touched brethren who got exiled to the forest where there's no sun there's no sun (laughs) so the the science behind that was a little iffy it must be that it's like tidally locked with the sun right i guess it doesn't revolve or doesn't um spin right it spins in right at the same rate so it's always facing Always facing the sun. The moon always faces the same side, always faces. So it's probably similar to that. But there wouldn't be that that razor sharp division between sun and and shade, though. That's a little out there. I mean, it it requires you to do a little hand waving. Probably be more of a like twilight zone. I think you have that if there's no atmosphere, but there is, you know, obviously an atmosphere here. Well, and also, I mean, the cavemen can't go past. Well, can't go into the light until, no, they they cannot, they cannot go into the, the land of the light. And there's also, also vampires as well. <laughs> well, they're what, like animals of the forest? Kind of along those lines? I don't know. Did, did they explain why they are uh, relegated to the, sh- to, to the shadows? Is, is that just a rule in the land of light? I think it's just a place where they could be that's separate from where the other people are, but there's no, ex- like, why wouldn't they just walk out of there? Like, it doesn't, there didn't seem to be any, like, enforced boundary or fencing or anything. Right. I think they needed that for the title. <laughs> they couldn't call it Broca Divide unless there was actually a divide. But the Land of the Light people were able, the untouched, were able to go in and drop off their touched brethren. We'll find out about that later. But if you remember, they were all dressed in white and they were shooting their slingshots. So in the dark, so they are able to go inside. They never explained why the touched could go out. Maybe they're just scared of the light and that's one aspect of their illness. Maybe they're, they have uh, increased sensitivity to light because uh, later on you see a lot of the, the soldiers were put in darkened rooms. Yeah, let's go with that. So when I saw those, the, the untouched, the, like in their full PPE, I immediately thought of it as PPE, which is a relic of our COVID times. They're also, they also like check, so everyone checks them, doesn't see any entry scar. There's a few things about this that I'm like, okay, would that be enough for you to be like, oh, they're not golds, it's fine. Especially 
Wait, when did Kowalski get, did he have an entry scar in his neck? He did, right? I believe so. And I think that's why they were, yeah, checking. It seems like at this point, we're in a very like naive understanding of the gold and like, like they assume that golds can only go in that way. And so if you don't have an entry scar, you're never, you're not infected at all. And also given the ghouls like rapid healing properties, wouldn't that scar heal very fast? Now that we're in the dark forest and we are seeing the people, cave people start to rape one of the untouched. At that point, she obviously she doesn't have any of the facial features of the cavemen. So we can deduce that she is untouched. What do you guys think about, especially Daniel's statement that the strongest of the tribe gets to rape whoever they want to? And well, and of course, Carter was like, wait, we need to shut this down. Like what happened? The last episode was all about saving Carter, but now Daniel's like, yeah, let it go ahead. What do you guys think? I hated that. (laughs) I absolutely hated it. Why do they always make Carter the voice of reason? Daniel sounds like he's, he's all for letting people, letting the whole gang rape that girl just because it's anthropology. I thought that was an awful moment. Yeah, I mean, Carter's always the like, hey, rape is bad, let's do something about it. And everyone's like, oh, really? Should we? I mean, it's, it seems like a pretty basic principle of like, we should all stop rapes and happening in front of us if it within our power to do so. Uh, and it shouldn't be like a women's issue <laughs> that she has to bring up at every opportunity. Again, I think that Daniel character was very one-dimensional from for a lot of this season because it because this whole like oh it led, it's fine to like watch people suffer in front of me for anthropology doesn't seem really in line with his character the way it developed and so it felt like they were trying to have this like forced moral debate that didn't really feel very natural. The rape scene, along with the untouched using slings to throw rocks at the cavemen, was very clan of the cave bear. If you guys read that, the book from 1980, both of those things featured very prominently in it. And that's all I could think of. Again, it felt derivative. Like everybody saw that movie, everybody. And most, (laughs) okay, well, that's something that we can bring up later, but that's Daryl Hannah. I mean, that was like the be all end all for uh, softcore porn for us in high school. right? That book was very like, that's had some sex scenes, but your mom still let you read it. And Sam, you seem to be indicating that is exactly what happened to you. Oh yeah. Of course I read Valley of the Horses or Valley of the Penises, as some people say. I missed this whole thing. Maybe growing up, maybe going to Jewish school, like shielded me from all these cultural phenomena. Once they rescue the girl, they enter into the land of the light. And that's where we come across all the people who are wearing their PPE in their outfits. I'm sorry. I have to bring this in. I love a man in a belly shirt. (laughs) I think that we need to go back to men in belly shirts. Maybe this is like, um, this goes to my age. I believe I am the oldest person on this panel, but in the 80s, there was a lot of belly shirts and things were, were, were good. We need to go back to the I'm belly I'm not shirt. sure that I agree with this, but. <laughs> you don't like teal belly shirts? Come on. I disagree, Marika. Perhaps it was the hat he was wearing, but the whole outfit did not work for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I can't stop laughing. Uh, yeah, that hat was rough. But it, I mean, it did show that he was the leader and maybe only leaders get to wear weird hats and belly teal belly shirts. Well, the guards were quite really clad or not clad at all. And where did they find those guys? Those are the most guys I've ever seen in my life. It was like looking at the rock in like a wrestling like tunic thing. That was awesome. To the gym a lot more. You'd get that maybe. I don't quite. I mean, I understand. I haven't watched as much Star Trek as probably the both of you. But so I understand that you want to create worlds with unusual outfits to differentiate, especially our people who are military from this alien culture. But come on, that was a lot of skin. A lot of sci-fi shows struggle with this. It's like, cause you want to show like, oh, they're not human. So they wouldn't have like suits and ties and they wouldn't dress the way we do, but you know, you still have to dress them somehow. And it, it, it's like, it's always a failure of imagination. And I do think Stargate gets particularly lazy especially later on with how they present these alien cultures in terms of like, you, it would have been a great opportunity for um, costume designers and they do get a little bit lazy. It, it might've been budget too. Maybe they just didn't have the budget or, or the, uh, the expertise to put a bunch of makeup on them so that they look more alien. But you're right, Malika, it did remind me of the original series of Star Trek where they had people in these ridiculous jewel toned outfits and not a, a, stitch of makeup to indicate their alien race and the women are always very naked every alien culture really likes to have their women be very naked they come in contact with these people the land of the light people and they were talking about that that this is where we first get the language of the cavemen being touched and eventually we find out that they're that are they the gods of the underworld? What did Tilk say about their relationship to the gods of the underworld? This is the like the bulk of the discussion about the, the Gaul and when they last came to this planet. So they said that the Hilksha were the evil gods that make people touched and that the good gods presumably were the Gould. I, don't, I mean, it was unclear like why the Gould would be considered good gods. They are, they do teach their human slaves to like revere them as gods and so it could be that they're seen as the gods but they O'Neill had asked them when the last time the good gods had arrived and he, they said a generation so he's like all right peace out we're not going to get anywhere here let's go home and I presume they meant the gold when they were talking about the good gods that discussion made O'Neill want to leave yeah he was done O'Neill is not interested in cultural diplomacy <laughs> or art appreciation as he said but uh Thankfully for us, the president is in favor of art appreciation. Yeah, who knew Clinton liked art? <laughs> Probably a bit of naked ladies. Well, maybe he should, they showed them pictures of these scantily clad women. And Clinton's like, let's go back there. I like that planet. No, it's Tupelo in his belly shirt. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. <laughs> I can see Bill Clinton appreciating a man in a belly shirt. So... The fact that the untouched become the touched means that there has to be some interaction in order for that virus to spread, right? They do get into the light sometimes and the, the untouched and then they become the touched and then they get banished, which would think then if this is a continuous problem, you would think they'd 
create some kind of stronger barrier. This doesn't appear to be a very large civilization. People get ill, which they think is a curse, but actually is a virus, get ill, get banished. They come in contact with the untouched. Those people get touched, they get banished. I feel like this would be an easy virus to get rid of if you had some reasonable quarantine measures, like a fence between the touched and the untouched. Well, there's some, somehow the girl got in there, right? Whether she was kidnapped or she was, I don't know, picking berries in the dark. I don't know how she got in there. And they didn't really explain, is it just a touch? Is it like with O'Neill down the road, we'll see there's scratching and other things. So is it just proximity? Like, I, I think that they would have benefited from Dr. Fauci helping them. Because we all know about keeping safe. I would think that through trial and error, they would know too. Right. And they, I mean, even if the, though they didn't realize it was a disease, you know, they thought it was a curse. There was some understanding that it's, it's proximity to the touch, right? They're wearing their PPE when they go to the dark side. So there, there's some understanding that contact with the touched is what makes this happen. And so therefore I think that there, they would have put in place some way to limit that contact or eliminate that contact. Right, right. Which would be indicated from, of course, their PPE, but also the fact that they're not using knives or some kind of close proximity weapon. They're using slings and or slingshots and rocks, which would keep the touched farther away from them. So they understand that there's some kind of proximity issue. Sam, do you have anything that you want to add? Yes, they should have built a wall. (laughs) And have the touched pay for it. So now we've returned from the planet based on O'Neill shutting down the operation because this wasn't for art appreciation. And we're back in the boardroom and we're discussing the Broca Divide. Did anybody do any research in regards to the Broca Divide? Uh, Yeah, I did a little bit. So the title refers to the Broca area in the front lobe of the brain. Well, roughly speaking, it controls speech. So it was discovered by Paul Broca. Of course, he lended his name to the area, like all human beings do when they discover something. Basically, human beings needed a more complicated way of expressing themselves other than grunts and waves of their arms like the cavemen did or the cavewomen as well. So we we separated from our ancestors and essentially crossed the Broca divide and started to develop speech. And obviously, complex language didn't occur overnight. The development of the language was gradual, uh, and that's what the phrase Broca Divide refers to, the line between humans that use complex language to express themselves and ones who have not yet reached that level. So in other words, the cave people versus the articulate people or the land of the light people. The touched and untouched. Yeah, right. Uh, The name Manoah derives from Minos, who was a Greek god. Actually, he was a son of Zeus, and he was also uh, the mythological king of Crete. Uh, The bull featured prominently in many of their paintings. Uh, The bull supposedly represented strength, Uh, but Daniel was right when he said that we don't really know why the bull was a prominent symbol in Minoan culture. Uh, They didn't worship it as a god. Some statues and frescoes revealed that the Minoans might have engaged in bull sports, uh, not baiting the bull like you see in Spain, but actually using the bull as a as a vaulting horse, similar to what they do in gymnastics. As for their attire, I, I do see colors like magenta and turquoise, but I do not see that headdress or belly shirt. Sorry, Malika. 
belly shirts. They did wear very colorful robes, but only if they were rich. If they were poor, it was loincloths for the men and plain drab robes for the women. So that's the Minoan culture. I do have a question though. Would Daniel, who's an Egypt expert, be able, do you think it's realistic that he would be able to walk into this building having no idea who these people are and instantly identify them as descendants of the Minoans? Well, I think it was the bull. I, I, I don't remember if there was a huge statue of a bull. There might've been, but I, I think that's what Daniel noticed. And that's why he made the connection to the Minoan culture. If you are rich, you wear the brightly colored robes. If you're poor, you wear the loincloths. So is the Broca divide really about class and Marxism? And Benadryl is the cure for social ills that result from a classist system? And of course I'm kidding. But it is interesting the way that they're cast aside as like, and also the fact that they're called the the, un, the touched, you know, like it, to me, it reminded me of like untouchables and other kinds of class divisions where there's certain people that are seen as not wanted and not able to be part of society for one reason or another. It seems like they sort of lost the chance to make that connection. And perhaps if it had been done today, uh, they would have been a little bit more smart about that. When they get to the briefing room scene, sort of Sam and Daniel are the ones arguing for going back to that planet to study the Minoan culture and the broken divide and early man and all that jazz. And Hammond and the president end up agreeing with them after Daniel makes his impassioned plea that's completely not necessary. And then you have the first evidence that something is not quite right at the SGC with the Marine attacking Teal'c. You know, they're trying to create this tension between like the military, like let's just do our jobs and protect earth and the like scientists who want to do sciencey things and such a pain in everybody's butt. And so they're like sort of setting up this interaction between those two. I thought that Marine did a really good job uh, betraying someone who was about to attack because <laughs> they were just having a very calm discussion in the boardroom and suddenly the camera goes to this this guy who looks like he's about to explode like his eyes are just about to pop out of his head and then of course you have him have him frothing at the mouth later on that was a little much you never see the frothing after that yeah that was excellent face acting yes <laughs> did a great job with very few lines he, here's the thing when they were in the boardroom before even going to the planet uh, they focused in on him and there was a couple shots of him looking at Tilk. And so I knew something's up with this dude. Something's going to happen because he's just a random guy sitting at the table. Why did we focus on him? And then when they come back from the planet and they're having this discussion and they focus again on him and if, and exactly what Sam said, his face looks like he is he is ready to attack. I was like, why is nobody else seeing this? Like Tilk's like clocking him. Tilk is not the type of person to raise his hand and be like, we need to talk about this. But there's quite a few people at this table. And this guy is like, and I will use this second rock reference, but he looks like the rock and he's about to explode and do some wrestling moves. Like he's mad. Maybe this is the usual behavior from Marines. We never know. It's going to be every day at the SGC. This is what marine testosterone looks like. So I feel like Tilk got a little more to do in this episode. I feel like they haven't really known what to do with him. Like the first episode, he had his role, like the children of the gods. Okay. 
then he didn't really do much in episodes two and three. And now he like gets to do a little bit, mainly because he gets to be the, the, the uninfected person who gets to like save the day. But I think it's the first time we really get to see Tilk's character. So I'm wondering, Malika, what you thought of him since you are being introduced to him for the first time. He is so stiff. I appreciate it. I mean, he's an alien, right? Or at least he's not a human. So I appreciate that. But he is very stiff. But I do think that he is absolutely the hero of this episode. And he's the one who obviously will find out very shortly that he can't get infected. And he's the one who takes Daniel back to the planet. He's the one who rescues everybody. And without him, I mean, the humans would have just become all cavemen and mated and murdered. At the end of that boardroom scene, when the guy's frothing at the mouth and everybody's like four, I think, Marines are on top of him. Did you notice that O'Neill was the only person that wasn't standing up? He was like literally like hunched over the table. O'Neill has a very nonchalant attitude about most things. (laughs) Now we're in the locker room and Carter gets some big sexy hair. Sexy hair and sexy tank top. Yeah, I don't think that is standard issue uniform. (laughs) Well, maybe once you become a cave lady, your tops just shrink. And you get a lot of Aquanet. And you lose your bra too, apparently. Yes. I do like when she says to O'Neill, I want you. And he says, why? Do you want me? And he said, not like this. Love that. Yes, that was a very shipper. I agree. I wonder if that was uh, scripted or if Richard Dean Anderson came up with that himself. Apparently he was very fond of changing the lines that were written in the show. And that just seems like something that he would say. When an utterly beautiful woman comes on to you, he would say, "Uh, why? That shirtless scene was really gratuitous and really appreciated. Yeah, he had uh, the right amount of hair. Wait, who had the right amount of hair? RDA. You mean chest hair or head hair? No, chest hair. Like you want a little bit of hair? Because you you don't want a guy who has to go get his chest waxed. So remember, I I watched this when I had no idea that RDA was hot at all. And that was the first thing I thought, wow, that's a nice amount of hair on that chest. I honestly, I I cannot, I cannot even picture his chest hair. I'm going to have to go back and look. I was so focused on how they tried to make her sexy like the idea of animal sexuality, this is what it looks like. So I was focused on her. I was not really looking at him. She's She was really hot in this scene. I have to say, I was looking at her too. And she played it so well. I think she really captured exactly what they're going for. And props to O'Neill. You have this very sexy, scantily clad Carter forcing you, forcibly kissing you and basically throwing herself at you. And he says no, like he's supposed to do as her commanding officer and takes her to the infirmary. So I also thought that was a good moment to, to showcase his, his character and the way he protects his team and doesn't want to do anything that could hurt them. And a less scrupulous colonel would not have been doing that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I was glad that he took her to the infirmary. I wanted to see what happened on the way to the infirmary, (laughs) if anything did. But yeah, I think that that showed that he, yeah, he says no in the appropriate situations. Were there other people in this locker room though that would have like seen that? Yeah, there were a bunch of other men. We don't know, at least at this point, whether they have co-ed locker rooms, probably not. But there were like, I think I saw at least three other men in the locker room. And he did look startled to see her. 
just be her presence, even I believe before he clocked that she was super sexy. It doesn't make sense that they would have a separate locker room because so far, I think we've seen what, like three women? Speaking of though, Janet Frazier comes in when they take her to the infirmary. That's the first time we see Janet Frazier and she's awesome. Yes, I agree. Much better than the other doctor from episode two. The one who was murdered? The one who was murdered and then the one after him. Well, we don't really know anything about the murdered guy who was in like two seconds. And then Dr. Warner. Yes, a, a breathing doctor is always better than a dead doctor. Although this doctor, I mean, I love a lady doctor, but come on, put on some gloves. We don't know, or a mask or something. We don't know how this is transmissible. Do something to protect yourself. But then I, we can see your face. Yes, it's true. And it's so interesting watching, you know, like I never would have thought twice about stuff like that. COVID has just ruined us for any kind of TV representation of transmissible diseases. (laughs) Because it's like, like I never thought, oh, she should be wearing gloves and a mask. And I mean, probably she should have. But now it's like, I'm so conscious of how diseases are transmitted and how like public health works, that it just seems so ridiculous. You would think that they would have had a plan for encountering an alien virus. This can't be a surprise to them, right? They should be pulling out the what to do when you encounter a virus uh, off-world binder and and looking it up. Yeah, it's probably the most likely thing that's gonna kill you off-world. Where is she from? I've seen her before, the doctor. Yes, she was one of the nurses in an X-Files episode. She was the one, the nurse who got beaten up by the ghost of a dead guy or an old guy. Oh yeah. You know who else is in an X-Files episode? This is, the X-Files are awesome because it was like before Stargate and you see all the actors. Amanda Tapping is in an episode of of X-Files where she sleeps with Mitch Pileggi and gets murdered in the first scene before the credits. And it is like so awesome. You guys know how I feel about Mitch. I love Mitch, I know. And so Malika, once we get to Atlantis, you're going to be very happy. I'll bring my picture. I have a picture. He's a starship captain in Atlantis. But I, I always think about this. So they did this X-Files episode where like they, there's a real sex scene between them where there's clearly top nudity of the part of the actors. And, you know, and poor Amanda Tapping doesn't even get any lines or she gets a few lines and then dies. But then they have to work together on Atlantis. And I'm like, hey, remember when we were topless together on the X-Files 10 years ago? Like, was that a conversation point that they had? Well, at this point, they're probably used to it, right? How did you guys like Carter's unibrow? Like all the men, they get the brow ridges right away. But the but Carter, obviously she's the only woman. She's got like a full on tuft. And a little much. <laughs> you appreciate unibrow representation in media as somebody of Middle Eastern descent. Yeah, no, Neil doesn't really, he gets the brow ridges. He doesn't get the crazy hair. It's only the women that get the, the tufts. Yes, and then they magically go back to normal at the end of the episode. If a virus like triggers latent DNA, I feel like it would take longer to present itself and then longer to to go away or may even be permanent than it would just like pop up and pop. Like Brow Ridges is bone, right? (laughs) It just pop up and pop down. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I don't think they're that flexible. I don't think bone can just grow that fast and then like go away. So the control room, I think we're now to the control room where Daniel and Jack have their little tussle. As a shipper, I did like O'Neill's like jealous, she's not you to check up on. 
even though it was virus related and not actually him. But I think the whole idea was that the virus like pronounces feelings you already have, like with the Marine, how, how we saw him at the beginning being wary of Teal'c. And then when he got infected, that turned into like aggression. And so you, I think it signals that there is this latent attraction between O'Neill and Carter and the virus just sort of made that more pronounced and made them act on it in ways that they wouldn't have. So he's sort of laying his claim to her and not appreciating Daniel's concern. Yes, there's shipper stuff going on in regards to their initial attraction, but then everybody's like, nah, nah, you're just the alpha male and all the women should be throwing themselves at you. I read the scene in the control room as Daniel actually having a bit of a crush on Carter. Because when O'Neill told him that she came on to him, Daniel then said, oh, you poor man. Yeah, in a sarcastic way. I think it's reasonable that he would have a crush on Carter too. I mean, like he clearly, like that whole like, oh, you poor man is clearly acknowledging that he finds her attractive or like can appreciate that she's an attractive woman. And like, why would you be upset that Carter came on to you? Well, he was the one in the last episode whose eyes fell out of his face based on Carter's Mongolian empire garb. He was worse than O'Neill. So I think he's just the ladies man. Isn't James Spader the quintessential ladies man in everything that he does? He has Sharae, right? So like Daniel's in love with his wife and his whole mission is to find her. Although he, for somebody whose whole mission is to find her, who really does like to turn over every goddamn rock on every planet that they visit, even when it's clear that they, she will not be found on that planet. So there is a little discontinuity there. But yeah, I think he's all love, he's, he's all forlorn and not available for a relationship with anybody else. But maybe Daniel is secretly a ladies man. I think he is. When they find him at the end of this episode, he is with the other girl who has been touched. And I think O'Neill makes a comment about how on every planet he finds a lady. Um, they look very happy as if they did something. Eating their turkey legs. I thought it was very interesting that O'Neill had turned into Mick Jagger because he looked like Mick Jagger to me. I did not pick up on that. I don't know if that is more of a Mick Jagger is a caveman, therefore all cavemen need to look like Mick Jagger, or they were just like, you know, we need to make him look sexy. And I'm not saying that Mick Jagger is sexy, but we need to make him look sexy. And we think Mick Jagger is a sexy man. So let's give him the the brow ridges and weird upper lip of Mick Jagger. What, what did you think of RDA's uh, acting choice as uh, Caveman O'Neill? It was rough. I had to turn on subtitles for like half of this. It was really hard to understand what he was saying. The screeching. I could not take the screeching. I don't know if this was the sound on my TV or if RDA just has a natural high voice when he yells. Does he think that cavemen screech? So I watched this episode with my five-year-old and that was the only part that scared him of this whole episode was the screeching. Oh, poor guy. Let's talk about the interaction between the doctor and caveman O'Neill. What do you think about that? Too much touching. I appreciate that they seem to have a good relationship, even though this is our first episode seeing her, but there was a lot of touching. There was, and again, to Rose's point, I would have never noticed this until after COVID happened. But she's all up in his face. I think O'Neill touched her cheek and was like caressing her cheek. They were whispering back and forth. We know that it's a virus because she states, 
it's a virus that stimulates this hormone. We don't know exactly how to fix it yet, but we do know that it's a virus. And so she's like, there are no protocols here. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that they figured everyone on the mountain or everyone on the base was already infected. And so what's the point? I'm not sure that that's proper medical protocol. And she's also like realizing that she's not succumbing. So she must have some immunity herself. But yeah, it seems like that wouldn't be the way you would go with a transmissible virus that's like possibly airborne. Or by touch, even yeah. by touch, right? Yeah, I was a little surprised that she let O'Neill touch her. This uh, violent caveman is touching my cheek. Yes, very close to my neck that he could easily snap if he wanted to. Then Tilk goes back to the planet with Daniel to get the blood sample. I don't know how long it takes to be a phlebotomist, but Tilk really picked that up quick. Tilk's a smart guy. I always feel like that he's sort of supposed to be this like under the radar, like genius. Like he really gets stuff and pretends like he doesn't or doesn't like let on that he gets stuff. Except for the fact that he wasn't minding his back. That's like a total throwback to the very beginning of this episode about the, the Marines watching your back. Because here he is shooting off his weapon and Daniel's being kidnapped. Poor Daniel. <laughs> of course he got kidnapped. Yes, no spoilers, but let's just say Daniel is prone to this sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to it. Once Tilk realizes that Daniel is gone forever, he makes it to the land of the light and tries to get them to help him with drawing a blood sample. Without going into too much depth, this is where we see the wrestling outfits on the uh, guards. Quick work is made of their skills at guarding this palace because Tilk just knocks them out and takes their blood. Yeah, those are some solid muscles on those guys. So that's impressive. That one punch will knock them out. Well, their immune system has probably been weakened by this virus, maybe. And the steroids that they have taken. Right. Right before that, when the people are like, you're no longer welcome here, and then they leave. Usually when you're somebody's not welcome in your house, you don't you make you wait for them to leave, right? You don't just leave them in unattended in a large room. That was a little weird. Well, the plot required it. We don't want to see Teal knock out Tupelo, do we? That would not have been a fair fight. Never punch a man in a midriff. I do want to acknowledge how terrific Benadryl is <laughs> because Benadryl has re- has rescued an entire military base now. Like a really big shot of Benadryl. <laughs> it is a big shot of Benadryl, but it is still Benadryl. It's a miracle drug. Benadryl is what keeps you from becoming a cave person slash animal. Yeah, the, the whole cure to the virus was a little silly. Frazier tried to explain it in, in using science words, and I still thought it was just completely silly. However, I do, I did like the um, I'm not Lucy. Yes, that was funny. It is plumbing the depths of Tilk's not knowing random television shows like Oprah and I Love Lucy. It's going to get old, but I still, I'm here for it. I like it. Well, he does. He's just such a good job. Like he plays the straight man so well. And he really like those jokes really work with him. The one thing I did not like, I thought O'Neill's comment at the end was a completely uncalled for. And it really pisses me off every time I watch it. After like he was such a, he he was so doing the right thing with like not taking advantage of her to like be such a gross guy about this and like tease her about something that was clearly not in her control in a like a sexually harassing way as her commanding officer was completely inappropriate. I agree. 
I, I still love it because of the shipping possibilities, but I completely agree. It was a form of, of sexual harassment. And then Carter smiled at it. In, in this day and age, she probably would not be smiling. She would be frowning and going to the next superior officer and telling him or her about this little uh, encounter she had. Yep. Hammond would be getting a report. Then the president would be like, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Clinton may not be the person to go do about sexual harassment. So what does everybody think? How many chevrons for this episode? I'm going to say this is like between maybe a four and a half chevron episode for me. I like it. I think it still has some weird first season stuff to it, but overall enjoyable. I would give it a four, four chevrons, only because I always watch this episode when I do my rewatch. And it's because of the locker room scene. Maybe three chevrons for the the, the rest of the episode, which I forced myself to watch. I also give it four chevrons. I like the action, a lot, a lot of plot holes. However, I do give it 10 chevrons for male belly shirts. <laughs> there are only seven chevrons, by the way. Oh, are there only seven? Okay, so I give it seven. Okay, what would we see differently if this were shown today? No sexual harassment. Yeah, that, that ending would be different. Carter would be in Hammond's office. There would be some reporting of O'Neill, or it wouldn't have happened at all. Yeah, I don't think it would have happened at all. So what is on for next time? Next time is the first commandment. This one, I think, features more Carter. It's a bit more of a Carter episode. And more disclaimers will be needed. That's something to look forward to. Great. They really were pretty heavy-handed at the beginning of the first season with gender-based stuff. And not all good. Not all good at all. (laughs) So far, it has not been good at all for the women. Carter's made it out. Possibly not raped, but definitely sexually assaulted. And all the other women have either been sidelined, raped, sexually assaulted, or murdered. So... It can only go up from here, right? Yes. Well, we do have a female doctor, though, so there's that. That is true. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to our episode today, and we will see you next week. Yay. Yay. Bye. Very happy, as if they did something. Eating their turkey legs. Like us and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Even if you don't like us, you can still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole. Also visit us on our website, probingthewormhole.com. Thank you.